The scripture this morning is 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 17. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came in the wor- into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the God, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's probably important to remind you of what we're about to resume. It's been a long time since we uh, left the series that predated Easter. That's been a while back. Um, the series that we began um, was a series that came out of the book of Acts. We looked at the book of Acts and we got as far as in the historical narrative as the planting of certain churches by Paul. And at that point, my suggestion after the first of the year was that instead of marching through the rest of the book of Acts and looking at the establishment of those churches, we would take a new epistle of Paul and those of John and Peter and uh, try to summarize the major themes in all of those books in one sermon. Now, you remember I said it was a gigantic task. It was also a task that was open to failure because at the end, I'm sure I'll be dissatisfied with my presentation. It was a task that opened me up for criticism because as you look at these books, you may say he didn't pull out the most important themes and I'm used to that. That's okay. But no matter... An overview look of these books, a bird's eye view of what Paul and the other writers are saying is what we're up to. So today, here's the overview. It's an overview on 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. Why an overview on all three of those epistles? Well, they're called the pastoral epistles. They're grouped together with that label. And what are they? They, in effect, are... Words from Paul to two pastors, Timothy and Titus, and their admonitions to these pastors concerning their churches. But at the same time, being word of God, they are an admonition to Christ's church today. So about these epistles, what is there to learn uh, concerning our practical Christian living? Because the pastoral epistles are far more practical, we might say, than theological. It's not as though there's no theology in them, because Paul makes it very clear that theology is important. It's just that the way the epistles are written, there's no particular theme where he moves from this to this to this. It almost seems a little random. He speaks about certain things, and he shifts, and he moves, and he gives practical advice, and all of it is pastoral. So to give you an overview, uh, my overview, for better or for worse, of these three epistles, I've chosen four main points. First, 
truth. Truth. We see it at the outset and we see it throughout the epistles. Truth is absolutely essential according to Paul. Now, if Paul were here today, living in the world that we live in, he might not see it as much different than the world he lived in. Or he might see it as qualitatively different. It's kind of hard to determine. What Paul would certainly push back on in our contemporary world is the notion of what you might call radical relativism. Or the idea that no truth actually exists. Truth as a universal truth doesn't exist. Paul would say, no, that just cannot be true. Now we could do the philosophical argument on radical relativism and the absence of universal truth by suggesting, as I have in the past, and I won't get into that, that the notion of radical relativism or the absence of universal truth as a propositional statement is self-refuting to begin with. But we also might consider the fact that embedded even within the notion of radical relativism, there are universal truths that even those people who supposedly say there are not universal truths embrace for themselves. If you push at all, on a radical relativist, a person who says there is no such thing as a universal truth, if you push on the things that are important and dear to them in terms of their convictions, you'll find out rather quickly that they're really, concerned, they're really considered universal truths. As a matter of fact, the notion of rights and justice and the things that all of us hold dear in our society seem to be inextricably linked with some form of universal truth. Ask someone if they think that self-expression is an absolute right of human beings. And if they answer yes, they've expressed a universal truth. Ask someone if the right of protest to find justice is embedded in what is absolutely proper for individuals. And if they say yes, they're expressing not a relative, but a universal truth. And the list could go on. But let me leave that sort of philosophical part aside for a moment and remind you of what Paul is saying because he's not addressing the culture at all. He's addressing the church. What he's saying to the church. He's saying that truth does exist and error does exist. And there's lots of people, he says, that are communicating to the church error. He calls them false teachers, which means people who are teaching falsely. And on occasion, he says they have ulterior motives for this. Sometimes they don't have ulterior motives. They're just silly. Paul says there is such a thing as the gospel. There is such a thing as truth. To put it another way, dogma or doctrine matters. Guard the truth, he tells these young pastors. Guard it because it's the core of what it means to be Christian and to follow Christ. Truth is absolutely necessary. Now, we don't know exactly all that he's speaking about in particulars. 
what kinds of truths he's talking about. It would take a whole lot of discovery that we haven't found yet to find out exactly what he's talking about. But it's clear that the truth is important. Having said that, let me qualify it for a moment. This is not backpedaling. It's just a reminder. Just because there is such a thing as universal truth, just because there is such a thing as false doctrine and true doctrine, that is not to say that because we believe that and endorse it and hold the scriptures dear, that is not to say that we know all truth. We just admit that truth exists and it's found in Jesus Christ. We, by saying we believe in truth, are not also saying that we understand all truth. We don't understand all truth. We simply acknowledge that truth has a source, namely Jesus Christ and in Paul's description the scriptures. By saying that we endorse universal truth, that we believe in the truth, we're not suggesting that all truth concerning the world, let's say, for instance, the natural world, resides in the Bible itself. We're not saying that either. You know, to our north in Indianapolis is a wonderful place, uh, Simon Cancer Center. You know what I'm very grateful about concerning that cancer center? That the doctors and the researchers don't spend eight hours a day studying the Bible in order to find a cure for cancer. I would be delighted, as Paul would, if they would embrace the truth of the Bible, all of them. Because I, like Paul, want everyone to come to the knowledge of the truth. But it's not to suggest that every truth concerning humanity is lodged in the Bible. That's something different. Let me put it another way. I'm glad that when NASA decided to send a spaceship to the moon, it didn't use astronomical calculations based on the Psalms. Because we wouldn't have landed on the moon. So we must be clear about that and, well, not be stupid and arrogant. (laughs) The truth concerning God and humanity is in the scriptures. But not all truth concerning our world is in the scripture itself. There's much to be discovered in this world. The point of Paul's statement about the truth I think is this. The truth is lodged in inseparably from Jesus Christ himself. Paul might have echoed the words of Jesus Christ, though he didn't do it in these epistles. And he might have said, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. The source of all things is in me. Now, he did say something quite similar to that in Colossians. In him, that is Jesus Christ... All things hold together. Everything is somehow finding its source in Jesus. But it's not just about knowledge that Paul speaks. 
It's never just about knowledge for Paul. It's about relationship with the truth, namely Jesus Christ. So the point is this, after all this description of the truth, the point is this, Paul is not saying, find the truth and believe the truth in in your head. Paul is saying, find the truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and walk with Jesus Christ in order to uncover the truth concerning life. It's all about life in Christ for Paul. And that's where the truth concerning your reality and your world is found. So doctrine, according to Paul, cannot be separated from devoted following of Christ. They are inseparable. First was universal truth. And second, the notion of truth we need to remind ourselves is there were false teachers. They were just simply teaching things that were false. We don't know exactly what they were teaching. We suspect that probably something of what they were teaching was some kind of early form of what would later be called Gnosticism. Probably some form that said the body is is not worthy of the soul. Some form of that that would suggest that the resurrection itself is not a bodily thing. Those are things that you find in Paul's other epistles. It may even be that Paul, when he speaks about those who are speaking falsely concerning the truth, are those who, like in Galatians, are suggesting that there's some way to gain merit before God besides faith. It's hard to tell exactly what he's arguing against, but he is saying that doctrine is practical and you must know the truth. The second part of the epistles, I think, of the theme is... The word gospel. It's our primary calling. Um, In the fall, um, well, early in August, especially, we're going to do a three-part series on evangelism. And then in the fall, um, we're going to come out of that by doing a series called Encounters with Jesus. To look at how Jesus encountered others and others encountered him as a backdrop for evangelism. Evangelism is part of the DNA, isn't it, of evangelical churches. And it's very important. And there are occasions under which evangelism seems to eclipse everything for some folk. I think the reality, not only in these epistles, but in other epistles is that evangelism is an outgrowth of worship and lifestyle. It's not a separate thing unto itself. That's why early on Paul speaks about worship and people lifting up holy hands and propriety in worship. That's why in the context of this notion of the gospel, this worship He tells people to worship in such a way that they glorify God. In other words, your worship reflects the glory of God and people see the glory of God through your worship. And then you're able to tell your story. That's a very practical reality that goes to the heart of worship. He talks about the public reading of Scripture. Don't neglect it. You may notice we don't. As a matter of fact, we try to traditionally respond to the word 
of Scripture that's publicly read. He speaks about preaching in worship as rightly dividing the word of truth. Being careful in understanding what the passage is about and rightly dividing that word of truth. And he instructs all of us in worship to lift up holy hands and also to pray for everyone. All our leaders and everyone in the world. Um, Let me pause and say something um, about how I was convicted in this passage. I thought to myself, public worship, we do it. Lift up holy hands, you can see it everywhere. Sing praise to God for sure. Public reading of scripture and the affirmation of it, we do. Public prayers for the world? Not so much. Am I wrong? Listen to my prayers and the prayers of the other pastors on any number of occasions. What do they consist of? Prayers about us. Let me suggest that you not just look under the microscope at us and worship, but ask the same question of yourself. How often are your prayers just about you? And how often... Are they about the world? I think there's something of a deficiency in our notion of public prayer in that regard. So, watch carefully. I think that will change. (laughs) There's something else about the gospel as our primary calling. Not only does it come out of worship, but Paul suggests here and throughout other epistles, here's... Something very important, he says, whatever you do, don't do anything to discredit the gospel. In other words, conform your life in such a way that you might not want to conform it for the purpose of not discrediting the gospel. Or not, in the words of 1 Corinthians, not somehow pulling down another brother. Modify your lifestyle and your actions in such a way that your actions and your lifestyle do not form some sort of barrier to the good news. I actually think that's the heart of the admonition that relates to a number of things. Things that are really odd to us culturally. Like Paul's admonition that women not wear braided hair or gold. Or admonition from Paul in these epistles that women should be absolutely silent and never speak and worship. Or admonitions to slave that they ought to obey and submit to their masters when we don't even believe in slavery. What's going on with these admonitions? I think at the heart of all those admonitions, not just here but other places, is Paul is saying you're living in a particular place, at a particular time, in a particular culture, and I want you to live in such a way that nothing you do discredits the gospel. And there may be a variety of reasons that living this way or that way could discredit the gospel. 
Paul says, conform yourself to the reality that the gospel is more important than you are. Now, these admonitions, which some of which seem rather odd in our context, like women and gold and braided hair and a variety of other things, they, they seem so outside our culture that they seem of little value. That would be a mistake. To consider them outside our culture and thus of little value is, is not the way to approach Scripture. The question is, what is the principle that Paul is speaking about and how does it apply to today? The third thing I think is a theme in the, these epistles is ethics. They're inseparable from faith. In other epistles, instructions concerning how you ought to live, they come at the end of the epistle. Think about Philippians or Galatians or Ephesians. These instructions concerning holy living come at the end. In these epistles, they don't come at the end. They're just kind of intertwined all over the place. It's almost symbolic of saying doctrine and practice are absolutely inseparably linked. You must instruct the people, Timothy and Titus, to live in such a way that's consistent with the gospel. This is our ethic. They're just inseparably linked. But ethics for Paul is more than just following a group of guidelines. And for sure, Paul doesn't suggest that you follow a group of guidelines in order to perfect yourself. He also does not suggest that you follow a group of guidelines in order to retain or gain salvation because it comes through faith in Jesus Christ. I think the best way to understand Paul's ethic is to use a different word. Holiness. Paul calls the people of God to holiness. That's not walking in line with a particular ethic just to do it. Holiness is qualitatively different. To engage in holiness is to reflect the very image of God. Or to put it in the words of uh, 1 Peter, he's speaking about Leviticus and also the words of Jesus when he says, Be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. In other words, walk according to the Christian ethic, be holy, make holiness a part of your life so that you reflect the image of God because that's what you were created to do. So holiness is reflecting the very image of God on this earth. That's quite different than legalism, isn't it? It's quite different than checking off the list of your ethics. It's about living for God. It's about the image of God. Not only that, I think that holiness, if we understand holiness in light of ethics, is to live a life that's an offering of praise. Remember that wonderful passage in Romans 12? It speaks to this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, perfect, and pleasing will. Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, as praise to God. That's holiness. It's not a sterile ethic. The fourth theme uh, in these epistles, I believe, is community. And that is community designed by God. 
You see in the epistles that Paul says to Timothy and to Titus, make sure you ordain elders and deacons in your congregations. This is the way the church is supposed to function. There's some people, for all intents and purposes, that have dismissed this from their ecclesiology. And they think elders and deacons are just one way of organizing yourself. Let's call it something else and do something else. The reality, I think, is that it's a universal mandate. Organize yourself in leadership around elders and deacons. There's something else he says about community, which is ordained by God. He said, don't let community be divided by silliness, foolish talk, and the kinds of things that just stir up controversy. As a matter of fact, he said, I want you to deal gently with these people who are like that, but I want you to deal dismissively with them as well. Because they cannot be a part of the core of what the church is all about if they're all about dissension. Paul, in effect, very calmly and very graciously is saying, deal with controversial people who are there for controversy and controversy alone. Do not let it happen. It'll destroy the church. Dismiss them if necessary. Or encourage them to go. Because the body of Christ must be sustained by unity. There's something else about community that you see in these epistles, and it is we need to support one another, especially those who are in need, the poor. Widows and orphans were the primary people who had needs, physical and material needs. And so you hear that reference to orphans and to widows. But we expand it beyond that on principle. Those who have particular financial needs, there's some very... Well, almost awkward bits of advice concerning widows in these contexts of the first of these uh, three epistles to Titus and Timothy. It's an application of wisdom concerning the distribution of goods. Or to put it another way, Paul essentially says, sometimes when someone asks, it's not appropriate to give. Because it enables laziness. And he says at other places as well. You must exercise wisdom to know how and when to assist. But you must assist those who are in need. That's our community, says Paul. What about all this for today? Truth, it's absolutely essential. And in our relativistic world, truth claims aren't popular. Unless they reinforce the dominant culture, then they're popular. And what are we called to do? We're called to live lives of single commitment to the truth embedded in the Word of God. That will cause for us alienation and sometimes persecution. Because it's a countercultural claim that the Word of God is truth. Follow it. The gospel, it's our primary calling. Do we pray enough for our world? My answer is no. Personally and corporately. We spend much time praying for ourselves. The second part of the gospel being our primary calling is this. This is a personal inventory question for all of you. 
What one thing in your life is an impediment to the proclamation of the good news about Jesus Christ? Let me hasten to add, there may be nothing wrong with it on its own. But whatever it is, if it's an impediment to the proclamation of the good news about Jesus Christ, you need to rid yourself of it. You need to give up your rights, so to speak. You need to submit to the gospel. I don't know what that is for you individually, but I'm convinced most of us have one or more of those things. Third, ethics. They're inseparable from our faith. And holiness is inseparable from faith. Holiness and faith go hand in hand. When we speak of holiness or ethics, legalism is an ever-present danger. But a life of love and praise is a corrective. Or as Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Live holy lives because you love Jesus Christ. Community. It's designed by God. How many of us spend time, I know some of you do, because you've told me, praying for the leaders of your church, pastors, elders, and deacons. You should. Every day. Elders and deacons have to make decisions that are difficult and not popular. I think, for instance, of the deacons themselves and the hard decisions they have to make of whether or not to distribute things to people. And when it's right to say no, that's really hard. Pray for those deacons. You know what our job is as the church? To come alongside the leadership at every level and proclaim and reflect the redeeming grace and transforming truth of Jesus Christ. That's what we're here for. So let's pray for one another and work with one another and let the light of the gospel be proclaimed to everyone who sees us and God will be praised. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the grace that comes to us and the instruction of your word. Sometimes uh, the details and instructions are um, difficult to hear or to understand and often to apply. I pray you'll give us the grace to apply them and give us uh, the gentle spirit to deal with those who disagree. And above all, Lord, may our lives reflect your glory so that in everything we do, Christ might be seen. In your name we pray. Amen.